Hello, you're listening to On Her Terms, the podcast where we interview women working in various areas of the film industry about how they built up their careers and got to where they are today. I'm your new host, Catherine Tolentino. Jokes, I'm actually the same host. I just decided to drop the pseudonym Cuscatlan, which I was using for a few years because I just realized that I liked my regular last name a little bit better. For those of you who don't know, uh, I also am a filmmaker myself. Feel free to look me up on my website, katherinetolentino.com. You can check out all of my film work on there. I make this podcast because I've been working in the film industry myself since 2013, and I really value the conversations that I've had with established women filmmakers about their career paths because there is no handbook for how to navigate this industry. There's no like one way. And so I just think it's so interesting to hear from all these different people about how they got to where they are. And at a certain point, I felt like, you know, I just want to share that knowledge. So thanks for listening to the show. Um, now getting on to the interview. I'm really excited to present this interview today with Sue Hugh, who is an extremely talented and very humble showrunner, Korean-American showrunner, uh, who is currently in charge of the show Pachinko, a new series for Apple TV that is based on the 2017 novel of the same name by Korean-American author Min Jin Lee. Sue and I had a really great discussion about how one becomes a showrunner. She graduated from USC Film School, and following her graduation, she actually had a difficult time landing a job. She felt like she was maybe being seen as overeducated, underqualified. But the key for her was internships. Someone from an internship that she worked while she was in school was able to land her a job as an assistant. And from there, she wrote her first script while she was uh, working as an assistant and through various different stages was able to get that script out into the world and then landed a job as a TV writer. Worked a few years as a TV writer and then sold a show to ABC called The Whispers. She talked about how difficult it is when you're first starting out to admit when you don't know something and how that changes the more experience you get in the industry. When you're first starting out, it's very scary to say, I don't know, because mm -hmm. then you feel like they're not gonna respect you. And now that I feel like I've earned my stripes in some ways, I can say, I don't know, you know, and I don't mm -hmm. feel like, I feel like by saying I don't know, I get the best brains working on it together. This is a great episode, uh, particularly if you're a writer, if you're debating whether or not to go to film school, we talk a lot about whether that's a good idea. If you are looking to get to that next step in your writing career, Sue has a lot of great insight. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the other side. listeners who are unfamiliar, what is the role of a showrunner? Great question. Uh, the showrunner can be anything from just the creative head to someone who takes on the entire process. And every show and every showrunner does it differently. It's one of those jobs that uh, you can make the job description be, you know, 10 bullet points or th a thousand bullet mm. points. And I think that's really one of the things that makes the job incredible. The way I've sort of viewed the showrunner, think of it as a CEO of a television show. I mean, TV shows now cost so much money to make. Let's say, I'm just going to throw out some figures. Let's say a show costs 20 million, 40 million, 100 million, 200 million. Um, these are all staggering amounts of money for one season. And so the showrunner is someone who is given, for now, I'll just say 100 million, just for the sake of ease. You are given charge of a $100 million company, right? Whether you have 10 episodes or 20 episodes. Uh, and your job is not is not only to deliver the the best creative 
you know, uh, output, but also to be fiscally responsible. So it's really wearing the left, you know, the hat on the left brain and the right brain at the same time. And so people think, oh, this is a job that just entails creative acumen. And I think they will be very mistaken. I've had to use my right brain so much more being a showrunner. Uh, and at first it was, wow, I have not done math in so long. <laughs> and now I think it's really one of the things that makes me love, love, love this job is that it allows me to flex so many different muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, and the end result, I mean, the, always the objective is how do you make the best television show possible? How do you tell the best story? How do you tell this, this story as, as well as you can? Um, and every decision, like it's when you're on set and you have to make the decision of whether or not you cut a location mm-hmm. or whether or not you cut a scene or whether or not... Um, if you're choosing between two actors, which actor is really going to betray the character arc of that st- character for the entire season run? Um, these also have fiscal components. Mm-hmm. And I think the showrunner is someone who really has to hold all of that, juggle all of that together. That is such a crazy job. It is, yeah. <laughs> I feel like hearing you talk about it, I mean, I love your comparison to business, and it's not something that I've heard much in the film industry, so many people talk about the creative yeah. side, like you said. Um, I'm in my third year of film school now, and I'm trying to make these sorts of creative decisions that I've never had any experience making before, like even as little as like in the color that we're choosing for this film. Do we put green in the highlights? Do we put pink in the highlights? And they're the sorts of decisions that you're describing in, in your everyday work. It's like, how do you have a sense of like what the results are going to be from where you're standing? Well, so it's interesting. I created a show uh, many years ago, and I was very, fairly new in the TV world when I created a show called The Whispers. Mm. That what that was a go at ABC, um, and it was a shock to me that the show was a go. Um, and I really credit and thank ABC for giving me the best film school education <laughs> at their expense. Um, but so I created a show. I just had three, two years of TV under my belt. Crazy. And so I definitely felt like they wanted me to partner up with a more experienced um, uh, showrunner. And so we really did it together. And what was interesting was uh, just how debilitated I was at first with imposter syndrome. Right. If everyone's going to know that I'm, uh, I should not be here. But at the end of the day, I was also the person that had to fight for the show. And I think learning about that and really realizing that, oh my gosh, when I write the word red on the script, they're going to, you know, put them in red. <laughs> and you're like, wow, these people care. This is their, not only just their jobs, but it is also their passion. Mm-hmm. The more you do something and the more experience you have of something, the less you feel like you know anything, but the more comfortable you're saying, I don't know. Mm. When you're first starting out, it's very scary to say, I don't know, because mm-hmm. then you feel like they're not going to respect you. And now that I feel like I've earned my stripes in some ways, I can say, I don't know, you know, and I don't mm-hmm. feel like, I feel like by saying, I don't know, I get the best brains working on it together. It really helps when you have... Um when it feels like you have permission from the people that you're working for, if there is that open environment yeah. and that, that embracing of not knowing, I feel like oftentimes though in, in Hollywood, that environment doesn't exist on, on a lot of shows. I mean, for example, in film school, that's where I'm at right now, we talk a lot about auteur theory and mm-hmm. a lot of our professors are 
And like the director needs to be able to say exactly what he wants all the time. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know an answer, make it up. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> right. And I like the, your, the approach that you're describing of like openness, a sort of safe space, yeah. and also inviting collaboration. Well, I think the environment, the fake it till you make it uh, theory of life. You know, I just was talking to someone about Bad Blood, the Theranos biography yeah. of Elizabeth. And you're like, oh my gosh, she just, I, I want to have sympathy <laughs> for this woman instead of thinking of her as a psychopath. And just In my narrative brain, I create this story of someone who just was like, I can't tell them I don't know. I can't tell them I don't know. Because in our society, we, we've really, really set up an environment where, and I think that's why that gets us into like, not to like go too macro, but I think it really sets up this, you know, why did we have the financial failures? Why do we have these banks that just, it, at some point, no one wants to take responsibility and mm -hmm. say, wait a minute, stop, I don't know here, we need help. But so many of the people I most admire are people who say, when I know something, I know something, and when I don't, I don't. It just means you're more confident in yourself. It's the people mm -hmm. who you just feel like, I know everything in New York, you actually are totally terrified and you have known nothing. For our listeners who don't know, there's when you sort of progress along the path of a writer, there's sort of like stages of writerdom, yeah. like there's sort of like a ladder there. So what is that? What's that like? And it's changed a lot. So, I mean, it's amazing how quickly it changed in terms of all the levels and the hierarchy being shattered, which is exciting to me personally. Um, and I was on that cusp of that where like in TV used to be very, very hierarchical and very structured where you came in as a staff writer, then you worked your way up the ranks, you know, staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co, you know, just, and you earn your stripes and you go up to, then you get a show. And it was a very much apprenticeship mm. uh, process. And for a while it worked, I mean, I think it was, I think it's really great in the sense that it really aims to mentor uh younger people coming up. I think the problem is that the barriers of entry for outsiders, whether you're women or people of color, was very too hard. Mm. Um, but now that we're in an environment where for better or worse, we have so many outlets and so many shows out there, the industry just needs so much content that now they're like, who has a show? <laughs> and also I think the industry is desperate for new voices and desperate for new perspectives. And you know what? The, sort of the, the wacky original show may not actually come from there's someone who's made it up their hierarchy. So I remember in our presentation, um, and your, when you came to speak to our class a few weeks ago, you were saying that um, a lot of your mentors had told you, why are you finishing film school? You can right. just go ahead and get a job now. So w what are your thoughts on that now, looking back? It's complicated. I think I don't think I could have moved to L.A., I don't think I could have done the move from the East Coast without some kind of formal structure like film school drawing me there um, and providing the infrastructure for me. Now, I paid for it dearly and it's hefty, hefty student loans, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think in an ideal world, I would have just gone out and got a job as an assistant and learned that way. But there are traps to that, whereas, you know, you don't have... Film school, is an, I think, is an incredible, incredible indulgence in many, many ways. But that indulgence is nice that it gives your brain time to think. Mm -hmm. And it allows you know, so many just thoughts to stew and percolate in your mind. The question is, is it worth $150,000? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I ask myself that as well. Thankfully, yeah. my film school is much cheaper. <laughs> but so can you walk us through then... Um, 
the steps that happened following that in terms of landing your first writing job. Yeah. Well, after I got out of film school, I was thrown in a little bit of a panic because I realized I was qualified to do nothing <laughs> at all. Um, uh, so I looked for an assistant job in Hollywood and I couldn't find anything. I was one of those people that they deemed over underqualified where I had too much education, but not enough real world experience in the film world. But going back and I, you know, during film school, I interned and it was my connections to my internship that really helped me where one of the producers I worked for, who was very, very generous, uh, really vouched for me with another producer who was like, you know what, I want to take a chance on you and hire you as my assistant. And that took me into the assistant studio world. And it was so eye-opening because all of a sudden all these amazing scripts were coming over his desk. And the, long, the hours were super, super long. Um, but what was amazing is all of a sudden your bar for what is a good story goes comes from film school level, which is very low, I have to say. Not because people were bad, but because you're 22 and you've had no life experience. Like how, what did you think you were gonna write? Mm. But, uh, and then, you know, being at a desk like that and then just reading scripts written by you know masters and it was like ah this is how you write a script and so you know on any downtime i had on that assistant desk i wrote my first feature which was called deadline and it uh and it did really really well i got in the blacklist uh it got me mate managers and agents and it really launched my feature writing career how did you once you had finished the last draft of that yeah. script how did you you just started submitting it did you send it out to people you knew not yes. really i didn't know what to do people are like well why don't you just give it to your boss and it wasn't that kind of relationship and i do think people should be very careful about giving you know some bosses are more open to it and some bosses aren't it wasn't that my boss was open not open to it but i do think uh i do think it's an interesting question to consider uh but I didn't know what to do with it. And then someone told me about this fellowship uh, called the ABC Disney Fellowship. And they chose four writers, feature writers, and you get selected and you get paid, I don't know, like a salary for a year mm. to write a movie for ABC Disney. And I applied and it's a very competitive program. I didn't know really much about it. And I was one of the 10 finalists. And interestingly enough, I didn't get chosen. I wasn't one of the four. And I remember thinking, oh, it's over. My career's over. <laughs> uh, you know, being like, this is this was my one shot. <laughs> and then one of the executives at Disney called me and said, you know, like even though you didn't, you know, you didn't, even though you didn't get chosen, like your script's really good. Can I send it to a manager? And I said, um, yes. Wow. But I didn't really know think that was going to do anything. He sent it to um, uh, these managers at the time who were just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant men. And they were like, yes, we'll sign her. And overnight it was a Cinderella story where all of a sudden I had a thousand meetings and I wow. got script assignments. You know, it was just one of those where like Spielberg was interested. And it really was that very, very strange Cinderella story of like, wow, this really happens. Because um, I had heard of these things happening and never really believed it. And it mm. didn't happen for me. Uh, and then I was in the studio world writing movies you know crappy movies movies i would never watch honestly um, but movies i had fun writing and tried to do a really good job but i think they were movies that were not movies that i would watch so then when you were in that environment were you ever like thirsty for something else or did you feel like no this is what i want to be doing right now 
I think when you're, you know, when I was younger and hungrier, and I wrote very, very different types of films. Like I, you know, one of the things I always felt like I was very adapt, adept at writing different types of stories was I looked at each script as sort of like my own film school again, being mm. like, you know, I've actually never written uh, a thriller, so I'm getting paid to write a thriller. Or like, I am going to write a blow em up action movie. I'm getting paid to write a blow em up action movie. So I was like, let me, you know, look at every action movie and see how they're structured and see if I can, you know, there was, I thought it was a fun challenge to be like, I'm going to write the best action movie ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem is studio, the studio world makes one kind of movies, which are big temples. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're movies, they're not movies I watch. And so after a while, it started to get, it started to be a struggle pitching on movies. And there are more and more writers going for fewer and fewer movies as the industry was consolidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it got to be a, it got to be frustrating after a few years. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you had had a, a pilot that you'd written. Is that how? Then how did the whispers happen? I, those my agents were like, "Do you want to do TV?" I said, "No, no, no." And there was, there was an AMC show. It's like, "Oh, AMC, they make good stuff." Mm-hmm. Um, and they sent my feature, one of my feature scripts, for The Killing. And I was hired on The Killing. And it was a really, really great room. Um, and after The Killing, I worked for some uh, forgettable shows that were with really wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Who just all of the people, I've just been very fortunate in the sense that I've worked with really strong, strong um, creative forces. Who are also very generous at mentoring, which I think mm-hmm. is very important. And so when I created The Whispers, I'd been on three shows, three or four shows. Um, And that was when the industry was opening up, when all of a sudden being a a low-level writer didn't mean you couldn't create shows. And so uh, these two fantastic, fantastic producers uh, who are now superstars, Don Olmstead and Kate Bunsky, Don Olmstead runs... uh, Universal UCP mm-hmm. now uh, sent me a Ray Bradbury short story and this is when they were producing and they're like Sue this is only like a four page story can you think of anything and as a Ray Bradbury fan I read it and I was like oh it's a great short story it's not a TV show it's four pages <laughs> uh, but then I knew what I had just just had a baby so I was very much in a very strange mental space and the TV sh- and the short story is about kids who really much really pretty much help aliens invade the world and I think it was at that weird mental space like oh my god these children are evil I just had a baby this baby's gonna be evil um and you know that just really coasted through and got a green light from ABC which is all a big shock wow yeah I I can tell that in your early years as you were sort of exploring all these different avenues for ways to to make it in the industry um it seems like you were uh, patient and gracious in in every, every step of the way you sort of you know you you were given opportunities and and took every opportunity as as a way to like learn something new even if it wasn't what you were originally expecting that you were going to be doing I think that's a really great lesson for a lot of people well, yeah, I don't well thank you that's really nice of you to say I think it's just you know I think sometimes people forget it's a hard industry and there's some hard personalities but when I think about like my job is to, 
you know, entertain people. And more importantly, that my job is to leave my own creative canon behind, right? Mm. The fact that I'm being given an opportunity, I don't know. I think it's pretty amazing. It really is. I think when you think about, like, I'm not a coal miner, right? I'm not, when I think about my own immigrant parents' journey, Mm. uh, you know, I think people forget it's a luxury to create. Mm. It's a need to be grateful for the opportunity. And I think when it stops being fun, like, and I see some friends where I'm not sure it's fun for them anymore, mm. I don't know if it's worth it, you know? Uh, but I, I just, it's, God, it's fun. It's amazing. Yeah. And there's a lot of work. And sometimes it's like, uh, it's daunting. But it's amazing what we do. We get to make stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask what your immigrant parents' journey was? Do you feel like... Yeah. I mean, like, so they were the, you know, in some ways it was, you know, I always say all immigrant stories are the same, but none are, you know, they're all the same, but the textures are different, right? Um, You know, so they came to Korea, they came from Korea to America when I was one, and they didn't speak English at all, you know, and they very much, uh, they owned a grocery a grocery store a bodega a deli and they really i mean they worked 80 hours a week uh, and i think it's like they're like we came here so our kids could have a better life um and it really is that immigrant story of being like growing up in a very white suburb me me not wanting to connect connect to my immigrant background mm. and i always say this is the time before social media when you didn't realize there were other people like you. Mm. And I find it really interesting now, and I love, love, love the young generation who are connecting. And and for all the ills that social media is tasked with, and there are many, many ills, I do think that the one positive thing is it makes anyone who feels like an outsider, I think social media can make you feel not so strange. but I mean, in terms of immigrant parents who were like, you want to go into film, you know, for them, it was just like, oh, oh, no, we don't want it to be so hard for you. Why do you have to make it so hard? Mm. Right. Um, so I think I think the fact that I have a career in this is just a testament to that. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. When did they come around to what you were doing? When did they realize like, yeah, oh, I'm is- not sure they so- still understand what I do. My mom <laughs> understands what I do. But I think. I mean, Pachinko was big for her. I think Pachinko was very much like, oh, I know that book. Had she read it? It was just translated in Korean a few months ago when I sent her the book. And I think she was like, oh, you're going to make this? And wow. she's telling all her Korean friends, like, she's going to make Pachinko. And it felt like the first thing I think I did that she really connected to. That's huge. Um, yeah, which is like, I think, like, and I don't think I would have done this show, this book adaptation, if it wasn't for my mom. Because I don't think I would have felt like I had a right to tell this story. Really? With my with, you know, without my parents' experience, uh, I don't I don't know. It's interesting. Um, but you have a right to tell all the other stories that you. I'm very happy. Well, it's funny. <laughs> like I I find it funny on the terror that no one picked up. You know, the terror is a story of a 19th century British Royal Navy expedition of all white men, and no one picked up that uh, Dave and I. You know. You know, like I'm an Asian woman and Dave is the most sensitive, beautiful, glorious gay man that we're the ones questioning the British patriarchy, right? Um, and I love that. I was like, yes, we do. Like, you know what? We have a right to question the British patriarchy in the 19th century. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was interesting. It was like uh, just because you're an immigrant's daughter and you're Asian doesn't mean you don't have blind spots, right? We all mm-hmm. have blind spots. So I think it's just being very hyper vigilant about that. 
Wow, it's so interesting for you to say that. I feel like, and to say that about the terror as well, um, that you can, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that that in itself is sort of more of an opportunity to question and to challenge um, the status quo than even like writing about a group with which you identify. Oh, yeah. You know. I think there's something really interesting about like, you know, I say that I've made my career writing whites without a doubt I have I hope at least the way I wrote white was not to be critical because I don't think it's fair to be critical to anyone because I think people are all deserving of being taken on their own terms regardless of what group or class they're in but I do think it's interesting I just think it makes for more exciting storytelling to be like you know what we're going to tell this version from this perspective for just this once you know Mm -hmm. and not to say that I should own that narrative just like I should, I should not be the one to own the immigrants' experience narrative. I think I hope there's a million narratives about the sure. immigrant experience. They're all going to be very, very different. Sure. Um, I just think it's pretty cool that like the industry is open to like me telling. Um, I don't want to just do the immigrant story over and over in my career. Like, I would like to do as many, many different stories as possible. Hmm. Yeah. So then, while you're in the writers' room and developing this. How are you being vigilant about your blind spots? What is that? What does I that have look like? a wonderful, wonderful group of writers, and together we are on this fearless journey of telling compassionate stories. But I think I think the key is, you know, our writers' rooms ref- reflects a diverse, not just skin color, but diverse group of like diverse way of thinking. Mm-hmm. I think just like. You know, it used to be I understood the model where you only wanted a room that thought just like you, so they can write just like you. And now it's like, you know what? I think you need a group of people who challenge you, mm-hmm. um, who say, wait, you know what? I actually have a problem with the way that scene is depicted. And instead of being defensive, you're like, oh, what would you do? Um, and I think part of being both a responsible showrunner and, but also a confident showrunner is to be able to say like, oh, I agree with you, you're right. That was wrong. Or to be like, I see what you're saying, but you know what? I have to stick to my guns on this one. That's great. So I feel like my brain has just expanded. Um, thoughts or advice that you'd want to give for people who are just starting out in the industry? I, th- I think, I would just say, you know, don't sweat. I mean, people, I, I always get these questions like, how do I find an agent? And it's like, oh, wow, you just want to, you know, you, work, you are worrying about step 12, right? Mm-hmm. And you have step one through 11 to do. I feel like people care too much about the business of the industry and it will come I feel like just write 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 enjoy writing uh, ex- you know, and also just learn from other writers I just soak it all in be patient and also don't be a jerk because I do believe in karma I think and also you will feel jealousy in your career how can you not right <laughs> And I wish I had told my younger self this is you can choose so the jealousy eat at you, or you can just say, you know what, there's room for all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the, there's room for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's not a zero sum game. And in some ways, once you realize that, you all of a sudden just feel so much more free. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a pretty good job. Be, enjoy having it. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, that's our show this week. 
Thank you so much to Sue Hugh for joining me in the studio. Again, my name is Catherine Tolentino. I'm your host. I do this in my spare time because I believe that it's important to share our knowledge about how the film industry works and really support each other. If you have any questions for me or if you're interested in being on the show or know someone who's interested in being on the show, please feel free to write on her terms podcast at gmail.com. That's on her terms podcast at gmail.com. The theme song this week is a song called Number Wonder by the band Misery Slims, which I got from freemusicarchive.org. Thank you so much to Free Music Archive for putting all this Creative Commons music up online so that podcasters like me can use it for our shows. Uh, Thanks again for supporting the show, and uh, I'll see you next time.